Congressional Democrats are once again trying to prevent a future version of Schedule F. A new bill called the Saving the Civil Service Act marks the third attempt in Congress to try to legislate away the possibility of revival of the Trump-era executive order that made certain senior executive service members easier to fire. The new bill has some new details, though. We get them from Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And Drew, just uh, the quick explanation for those that may not have heard yet, Schedule F and its reviled provisions. Schedule F, it's been a big topic for a couple of years, ever since the executive order from 2020 under the Trump administration. As you said, it would have essentially allowed a presidential administration to reclassify some federal positions outside merit system principles. This would be for policy-related positions, and that would have impacted potentially up to 50,000 federal employees and essentially making them easier to fire. The idea was to create more flexibility and to be able to more easily remove poor performing federal employees. But it was only around for a couple of months, and Biden, as soon as he stepped into office, revoked that executive order. Some agencies had taken initial steps to reclassify, but ultimately it didn't really nothing really came from it. Sure. So the Saving the Civil Service Act would do what then exactly? Just say no more Schedule F? I mean, that was a term of the Trump administration. What does the law say? In so many words, it it is a target at preventing a future Schedule F type policy. But what it really says, what it really boils down to is blocking any presidential administration from ordering agencies to reclassify federal positions outside merit system principles. So there's not really a mention directly of Schedule F necessarily, but it would block similar types of executive orders or policies in the future. The caveat there in the legislation is that if Congress gives approval to reclassify a position, then agencies could go ahead and do so. But other than that, they wouldn't be allowed to. And this version of the bill, the Saving the Civil Service Act, it originated in the House with Representative Jerry Connolly and Senator Tim Kaine introduced the Senate version of the legislation. Senator Kaine spoke at a union rally about why he introduced the bill. Second thing we got to do is make sure, particularly on the Republican House side or for future administrations, that nobody tries to use this Schedule F scam to destroy civil service. So I have a save Civil Service Act with others that we're going to try to get passed as part of the defense bill this year so that we can avoid uh, a hollowing out of the civil service. The last thing we want to do is give presidents, frankly, presidents of either party, the ability to use patronage to sack people if they don't feel like they're loyal. You should be loyal to the citizens you serve, not to a particular occupant of any office. And Drew, relative to earlier attempts at this bill in the prior sessions of Congress, this one has some changes a little bit. What are some of the nuances there? The clearest change for it is the fact that it's been renamed the Saving the Civil Service Act. Previously, it was called Preventing a Patronage System Act. But there are some nuances in the actual text of the bill. It would, for one, require OPM, the Office of Personnel Management, to approve a transition before an agency could actually transfer an employee from the competitive service to the accepted service. 
Another requirement under the new version of the bill would be that federal employees would have to consent before an agency could transfer or reclassify a position between different services. And finally, it would also cap how many transfers agencies could make within a four-year period, i.e. a presidential term. The total number of transferred positions would be limited to just 1% of the total number of employees at an agency or just five employees at the maximum, whichever is greater of the two. And according to Kane's staff, some of those changes were just generally made to try to strengthen protections for federal employees. Yeah, I wonder if those would stand up to a constitutional challenge, regardless of whether it's a good or bad idea. But I just wonder if that's congressional prerogative to go that deeply into the day-to-day management of, of the executive branch. Just asking rhetorically, I don't really know. Now, as we mentioned at the top, this is the third time a bill like this has been introduced. What gives it a decent chance this year? This year, the House version already has a Republican co-sponsor on the bill, Representative Brian Fitzpatrick. And even though it was absent from the final version of the National Defense Authorization Act, Kane has said that the NDAA is still the most likely course for the bill to actually go through. He said that it didn't really have a chance to be introduced as a floor amendment last time around, but Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has already committed to having a floor amendment process this year, which Kane says that means basically that they will be able to get a vote on this bill. And he's hoping that it, that will kind of change things for the likeliness of it to be included in the NDAA. But even though it's, you know, it's February right now, he says that the timeline on this is no earlier than September. It's going to be a while before anything really moves forward on this. And Representative Connolly, who introduced the House version of the bill, he talked about more He talked more about why he is continuing to push forward with this legislation at an AFGE legislative conference. A nonpartisan, nonpoliticized civil service is not a new idea. Protecting that is really critical, and it's a critical part of our mission. We haven't won that fight. I got that bill passed in the House, but it didn't survive the conference with the Senate. So we're going to try again. All right. Thank you. And we won't cease until we win. All right. A regular Samuel L. Gompers there, Jerry Connolly. And I am presuming that the advocacy groups for federal employees, the big federal employee unions, are probably in favor of this bill to get rid of Schedule F since both of those fiery speeches were made at union events. Yep. You would be correct in your assumption there, Tom. A lot of federal unions and advocacy groups, different organizations have already voiced very strong support for this legislation. It's been a couple of years just in parallel with the progress of this bill over the course of three years that unions and these types of organizations are continuing to to follow suit and just push along with the, the lawmakers. Here. Well, it's an old question. You know, if you are a senior civil servant and you are not having party allegiance, Nevertheless, sometimes policies come along from a president or an administration that you vehemently disagree with as a person or based on your experience in the civil service. And there have been some highly public resignations of career people over the years during, I can remember several during the administration. I think what presidents, what administrations worry about is the prospect of people slow walking or 
somehow passively, aggressively thwarting policy that they have sworn as civil servants to carry out. Not an easy answer. And just being able to mass fire people is not the answer either. So I'm not sure we'll ever get a clear-cut definitive answer to that issue, huh? No, I think you're right. I think it is a very complicated topic. And, you know, even though some unions or organizations might say Schedule F wasn't the answer, there maybe is it points to a greater need for some sort of reform in, in some other way. But as you said, that is really complicated and not something that we've seen yet. All right. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a... um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost 
incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept 
me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Susulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.